Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Today's message is entitled, Hackers for Jesus. Hopefully it'll make sense later on as we get in this. Um, but would you join me in prayer? God, we just want to hear from you. Lord, we know that I have nothing to give. It's your word. And so we pray your Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts. God, that you would speak through your word, speak through me, and help us to know today what is it you're speaking to each of us individually, Lord? Help us to leave this service knowing that you've given each of us a message from you and how we can draw closer to you. And then, Lord, would you give us the strength that we need to obey and step forward? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know that in 1 Samuel so far, we read about how the nation of Israel demanded that God give them a human king. Now, God told them, you're not going to like it. I'm supposed to be your king. You're the only nation that has God as your king. You're going to regret getting a king. But the people said, no, we want a king. And so Israel refused to listen, and God graciously, mercifully gave them what they wanted, even though he knew it wasn't the best. And so King Saul became the first king of Israel. And not long afterwards, God used Saul to lead Israel in battle. And God gave Israel a great victory. I wonder if the nation of Israel was thinking, man, like we made such a great choice. Now we've got this king leading us in the battle and we've had this great victory. Like this is awesome. This is just what we've been wanting and hoping for. And yet that was short-lived. Because two weeks ago, we read how Saul was on the verge of another battle quite an impossible battle. But instead of waiting for the priest to arrive to offer a sacrifice as they worshiped God and trusted in God's power and strength, King Saul was tired of waiting. He got nervous. And so he went ahead and offered the sacrifice himself. And that was the problem because he broke God's law in doing so. Only the priests were to offer sacrifices, not King Saul. And so we read in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Starting in verse 13, it says, And Samuel the prophet said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul's rebuked because he disobeyed, and, and Samuel says, The king is going to be taken away from you. Now, meanwhile, while all of this is happening, Saul's son Jonathan was standing there. Not, not there, but there. And he's with his armor bearer, and he says, You know, we're not going to be saved from our enemies because of how strong we are or the weapons that we have or our numbers, but it's God. And God can save us with just two of us or with the whole army of us. And so maybe God wants to deliver us today from our enemies. And, and as they moved forward, they prayed and God guided them. And long story short, God led them to step out in faith and begin to attack the Philistines, all two of them, Israelites versus the countless number of Philistines. And as they stepped out in faith, then God confused the Philistines so that they began to fight each other. And then King Saul, 
he's looking across the valley and he sees his enemy melting away. And so he joins in the battle and he leads the rest of Israel to chase after the Philistines who are killing each other and fleeing. But Saul makes several mistakes along the way. First of all, last week we read how Saul was prideful and selfish. You see, he made the battle about himself, taking vengeance on his enemies. Guys, this whole battle between Israel and the Philistines, it's really about me and my enemies. It's all about me. Second, his mistake was he was legalistic. Saul said, I think it's a great idea to fast today so nobody gets to eat. I'm declaring a fast for everybody. I know we're running in battle and we're tired and it's a long, long, long fight, but you can't eat till the sun goes down. And so he put unnecessary burdens on his soldiers. It wasn't the Lord that led that, it was Saul. Third, Saul was judgmental. He judged others while excusing himself. Saul had just been rebuked for wrongly offering a sacrifice, and yet here he was condemning the people for not obeying and listening to him. And then fourth, Saul was paranoid, paranoid with insecurity, so that he tried to pull down everyone and anything else that might be over or higher than himself. Saul was so concerned about his image and his leadership that he was ready to kill even his son, Jonathan, at the end of chapter 14. Why? Well, because Jonathan didn't know about the fast, and Jonathan ate honey that day. And Saul said, well, Jonathan, you broke my rule, so now you have to die. Saul had just broken a rule, and that was God's rule that he broke, and yet Saul wasn't being judged for that. And so Saul was going crazy. I wonder if it was at this time that Israel began to wonder, huh, our king is trying to kill the man of faith that just led us in this victory. Maybe it was a bad idea to demand a king from God. Maybe God was right. Well, now we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. In verses 1 through 3, we read how God pronounces judgment. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 1. Samuel the prophet also said to King Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, Let's look at the screen at Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting in verse 17, where we get some more details on Amalek's sin. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So this is hundreds of years earlier. As Israel was rescued out of Egypt, they crossed over the Red Sea and they're wandering in the wilderness. Well, Amalek and the Amalekites, they came along and they saw some easy pickings. 
They came along the rear, and they began to attack those that were sick or tired or old and the ones that couldn't keep up, and they were just trying to profit off of attacking Israel. And God says, there's coming a time where they will be judged, but it's not right now. It's going to be later when you're in the promised land. And now, hundreds of years later, God says, time's up. Judgment is now coming, and God's going to send Saul to lead Israel in enforcing this judgment. Now, to me, this is interesting because it reminds us that there's always coming a time of judgment. There's a time for repentance, and then there's a time where the time's up and judgment is here. To me, it reminds us that time does not erase sin in God's eyes. Only Jesus erases sin. Only Jesus can offer forgiveness. But even though it's been hundreds of years since the Amalekites did this wickedness, God's now saying, okay, time's up. Judgment's going to come. You see, no amount of good works, no amount of time can turn a sinner into a saint. Only Jesus can do that. Now look with me at verse 3 in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God's speaking through Samuel, and he's telling Saul, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This was a firm judgment. It can be hard for us to imagine the God of love pronouncing death to an entire nation, down to the last child. But we must consider things from God's perspective rather than from our own perspective. And so if you want to take notes today on your note sheet, we're going to consider some key truths about God's judgment of the Amalekites. And here's the first one. First of all, God waited 400 years. 400 years. God gave the Amalekites centuries to repent, but they didn't repent. They continued in their sin. We know that if they repented, God would have mercy. In fact, this is exactly what happened when God sent a man named Jonah to go warn that judgment is coming in the city of Nineveh. And as he went about the city, he told them, judgment is coming. God's going to judge you. And amazingly, from the king down to the peasant, they all repented. And even more amazingly, God said, okay, I'll have mercy on you. And he delayed his judgment for another 150 years. God is merciful, but because the Amalekites didn't repent, judgment is now here. The second key truth we need to remember is that God would rather the Amalekites repent. He would rather they have repented. We read in Ezekiel chapter 18 in verse 23 where it says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? You see, God is not joyful as he executes his judgment. But God is just. He will bring forth judgment. He's a good judge. A good judge can't just ignore sin, can't just ignore the punishment that is due. He'll bring justice to all, which leads to our next point. You see, we all deserve judgment. 
We all deserve judgment. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 in the New Living Translation says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We're all guilty. And not just those of us that are older, but even, even the young. David says of himself in Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. David says, the moment I was conceived, I was already a sinner. You see, we're all descended from Adam and Eve. We inherit that sin nature. We're all born sinners. We're all born guilty. And therefore, none of us are innocent. Fourth, it's important we remember that children who die young go to heaven. You see, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, one of the consequences of his sin is the child that was born from that adulterous relationship got sick and died. And as David responded to his young son's death, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, David says, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You see, David knew that his child was not going to be seen anymore this life on this earth. But infants and young children, they're unable to comprehend or respond to faith in God. They're not held accountable. And so although there's no explicit verse in the Bible that says young children go to heaven, we can reasonably speculate based on the character of God and based on verses like this, that young children will be saved because they're not able to respond to the call of faith. Finally, regarding God's righteous judgment, I think it's so essential that we remember that God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. Think about this with me. God knows all things. You and I only know bits and pieces of a few things. God knows the future, while I only know parts of the past and even parts of the present. God is love. He proved it on the cross that He is love. God is merciful. He's gracious. He's long-suffering, and He is just. Now, the fact that God is God and I am not does not mean that we have to like God's judgment or that we have to understand His judgment. I confess that God's far greater than I can fully understand. This doesn't mean that we have to wait for God to ask our permission when He does things. God doesn't ask us to like it or understand it, nor does He wait for our approval. God does what He knows is best. And then He invites us to trust Him. He invites us to trust Him. And so when we come to a difficult passage like this, where God's judgment's going to come down on an entire nation, every person and every animal is going to be destroyed. I choose by faith to say, Lord, I recognize that I don't know everything. Lord, I recognize that I don't understand all that You do. But God, I know that you are good. I know that you are just. I know that you are merciful. I know that you are God, and I'm not. 
And so I choose to rest in God's character, in who God is, instead of trying to say, well, I think I could love better than you, God, or I think I could judge better than you, God. I choose by faith to say, Lord, I'm not saying I understand, but Lord, I am saying that you're God and I'm not, and I trust you with this. And so back to our passage, God told Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, everything of their nation. And now we pick up in verses 4 through 9 and read about Saul's disobedience. Verse 4, so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. These Kenites were a different people group. They were not part of the Amalekites. They were not part of God's judgment coming down. And so Saul says, hey, get out of the way. You don't need to be judged here. And wisely, they departed. To me, this reminds us of God's invitation to the world. You see, his invitation is for the whole world to repent and believe in Jesus so they can be spared of the coming judgment. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, God is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. That's God's heart. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Jesus hasn't established his kingdom yet. It's because he wants more people to be saved, that he's waiting for more people to repent and escape the coming judgment. Now look at verse 7. It says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. If you like to take notes in your Bible, you might want to underline the part where it says they were unwilling. There in verse 9. Unwilling to utterly destroy them. God says, kill everything. The people said, not the good stuff. We want to save that. It's too valuable. Let's not destroy all of these animals. They're strong. They're healthy. Let's keep them. Let's bring them home. And now in verses 10 through 23, we read how Saul is rebuked. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, it's always tricky when we're trying to use human language and human terms to describe God. And so when it says, I greatly regret, that's God speaking. God says, I regret that I made Saul king. 
but it's not a regret in the sense that you and I might regret something, right? I might eat way too much food and then regret it. Man, I didn't know I'd feel this bad, right? I thought this was a good idea. That's not how God regrets things. God's not saying, well, I didn't understand before, but now I have a better understanding. No, God's just reminding Samuel, this was never my first choice. That's why I warned the people, you're going to regret it. You're not going to like your human king that you're demanding. And so God's saying, this was never my plan, but I allowed it to happen. And now we see Saul's disobedience. Now verse 12, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Notice that after Saul leads Israel to defeat and destroy the Amalekites, and they partially obey, Saul then goes up and he builds a monument for himself. What's that tell us about Saul? We see a lack of worship of the Lord. We see a lack of obedience to the Lord. And we see this monument being erected so that Saul says, just in case you didn't know, I'm the king. I'm pretty awesome. It's all about him. And so Saul commits the sin of failing to give glory to God and also the sin of taking the glory for himself. Verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul and Saul says to Samuel, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now remember, Samuel's the prophet. He's the last judge of Israel. And so when Saul sees him, he tries to sound really spiritual. Oh, blessed are you of the Lord, brother. It's so great to see you. I've just been honoring God and doing all that he told me to do and everything's so great and, you know, praise God. He wanted to sound spiritual. He wanted to sound like he was being obedient, but it's all a front. Look at verse 14. Saul says, I've obeyed the commandment of God, but verse 14, but Samuel said, really? What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Notice Saul's attempts at excusing himself. First of all, Saul was quick to blame the people. Look again at that verse 15. They have brought them. They, the people. The people spared the best of the sheep and oxen. It was was their fault. It was their choice. It's not like I'm the king and I'm in control or anything. Second, notice that Saul tried to rationalize his disobedience by making it spiritual. He says, well, we spared all of these awesome animals and all this great wealth so that we could sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You see, it would have been a waste just to kill them all there. We're going to bring them to the temple and we're going to worship God. It's better this way. It's more spiritual. Third, Saul tried to excuse himself by emphasizing his partial obedience. He says, well, the rest, that we utterly destroyed. We killed everything. 
except for this stuff. But the rest we killed. We did a great job. We did most of what God told us to do. And really, our good outweighs our bad. It's not a big deal, Samuel. Don't worry about it. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Clearly, King Saul was no longer little in his own eyes. Saul no longer saw himself as king because of God's grace, but Saul saw himself as king because of his own accomplishments. Well, I'm the king because I'm a head taller than everybody else, and clearly that's because I ate my vegetables and I just grew really hard at night when you guys were all sleeping. That was my work, right? And there's a monument over there showing how great I am. So clearly, I get the credit for being king. Saul was no longer little in his own eyes. Verse 18, God continues to speak through Samuel, and he says, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, the people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Again, Saul claims, I have obeyed. I'm a righteous man. It's the people. They're the guilty ones. And in some ways, God, sorry, in some ways, Saul did obey the Lord. Perhaps 80% obedience. But as we learn from this passage, in God's eyes, partial obedience equals total disobedience. In God's eyes, partial obedience is the same as total disobedience. You see, this rebuke by Samuel was another opportunity for Saul to confess his sin and to repent, for Saul to become little in his own eyes once again, to humble himself and say, you know what, you're right. I shouldn't have done this. I was tempted by all the spoil that I saw. I was tempted by all the flocks of animals that we could keep. I thought it would be better this way, but I recognized that I was wrong. But Saul didn't do that. Saul continued to blame others and rationalize his sin and emphasize the parts that he obeyed. And so, verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Again, that's a key verse to underline in your Bibles. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. You see, God cares more about obedience than He cares about sacrifice. God didn't want all those sheep and oxen offered to Him as a sacrifice. 
God wanted them all destroyed like He commanded. And we can understand why. If Saul and the people just collected all this wealth from the Amalekites, well, they're going to begin to view, God, can you maybe judge a few other nations? Because we really benefited from those Amalekites. We would like for you to judge more people. We would like for you to wipe out more nations. All in the name of God. God says, no. My judgment is not a happy thing. My judgment is not something that other people benefit from. My judgment is firm, and it is just, and it is right. But it's not so that you get, get rich. Let's imagine that a woman comes home to a big surprise. Her husband has cleaned the whole house. He's made a special dinner from scratch. There's a bouquet of flowers and a jewelry box on the table. That'd be a nice surprise, right? That would be impressive. But what if this man, although he did all of these amazing, nice things, at the same time, he's cheating on his wife? Completely voids all the sacrifices that he's made. Completely ruins all of the loving things that he's done because he's unfaithful to her. So too, in our relationship with God, we might cry out to the Lord in worship. We might spend time reading the Bible or even serve in children's ministry. And yet, if we're not being obedient to the Lord, then all those sacrifices are worthless in God's eyes. Now, don't get me wrong. You can, you can praise God and worship and read your Bible every day and serve left and right, and you can impress me. You can impress others who don't know your heart, but you can't impress God because God knows our heart. If we're not obeying God's word, then all of our sacrifices are meaningless. Your next fill in the blank, we love God by obeying his commands. We love God by obeying his commands. We read this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 where it says, loving God means keeping His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So often in our culture, in our world, we talk about love as if it's an emotion and a feeling. And if that were true, then I could say, I love God, and I do whatever I want to do. And I could say both of those things. But that's not what love is. Love is a choice. Right here in the Bible, loving God means keeping His commandments. So we can say we love God till we're blue in the face, but if we're not obeying His commandments, then God says, keep talking. doesn't mean anything. Because I know your heart. Because I know your obedience or your lack of. You see, when we disobey God, we're choosing to love ourselves. Because when we disobey God, we're just saying, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to obey myself. Saul's actions showed that he loved himself more than he loved God. He could offer all these animals to the Lord. He could look spiritual doing it. He could impress the nation, but he would fail to impress God. <clears throat> King David, however, King David understood that God cares more about obedience than sacrifice. In Psalm 51, verse 16 David says, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. 
the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You see, when David sinned with Bathsheba, he committed adultery with her. She was married to somebody else. David, when he was confronted with that sin, he didn't try to earn God's favor and say, you know what, Lord, you're right. 1,000 bulls sacrificed. All right, now we're good. No, David didn't try to do that because David knows, Lord, you don't want me to give some great offering. You don't want me to make some great sacrifice. What you want, Lord, is you want me to be little in my own eyes. What you want is for me to be humble. What you want is for me to say, I blew it. To have a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart that says, Lord, I've sinned and there's nothing I can do to fix it or change it or anything. But God, all of my broken pieces, I lay here bare before you. That's what David did. And that's what we want to be like. David stopped obeying his own will when he was confronted with his sin. And he turned back to obeying God's will. Okay, Lord, I want to get back on track with you. And that's how we should be. Because sacrifice without obedience is worthless. Now, back to our passage, the prophet Samuel continues speaking to King Saul in verse 23. He's just told him, obedience is better than sacrifice. And then he goes on in verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Did you catch those harsh words there? Samuel calls it rebellion. Now, Saul says, wait a minute here. I killed most of them. I was mostly obedient. And, and Saul, Samuel says, no, you were rebellious. You see, we don't like to call sin, sin. And we definitely don't like to call sin rebellion against God. And yet, that's the truth of what sin is. Every sin, whether little or great, it's rebellion against God. We commit idolatry because we make ourselves to be our own God. When we choose to obey ourselves, we're saying, I want to play God in my life. I'm going to obey myself. I'm going to ignore what God says, and I'm going to commit idolatry in this moment, in this act. That's why he says rebellion is idolatry, because we're worshiping ourselves. Samuel finishes verse 23 saying, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. God's punishment for Saul was to strip away the throne and give it to somebody else. Now in verses 24 through 31, we read how Saul is rejected. Verse 24, Then Saul, the king, said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. Notice the timing of Saul's repentance. Once the punishment has been dealt, suddenly Saul's eyes are opened, and he says, oh, Did I mention that I've sinned? I'm totally guilty. Like, you don't need to ground me, mom. It's okay. Like, now that you took away my car keys, you're right. 
I can see clearly now. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. But the timing is so essential because Saul doesn't care about getting right with the Lord. Saul just wants to avoid the consequences of his sin. Once again, David gives us the better example. Again, regarding his sin with Bathsheba, when David was confronted with his sin, David confessed and repented before God mentions any of the punishment or consequences. David repented because he wanted to get right with the Lord. And then after David repents, God says, by the way, David, the sword is not going to depart from your house. There's going to be wars and battles within your own family and sons because of your adultery. Oh, and, and by the way, David, the child from your adulterous relationship, he's, he's going to die. Oh, and, and by the way, David, what you did in secret, adultery, is going to be done to you in public when somebody else would commit adultery with his wives for all to see. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was David, I would say, but I just repented. Can we maybe nix, you know, a couple of those? But David didn't do that. David received it. Not that he was glad about it, but David just said, I don't, I don't care about the consequences. I blew it. I deserve it. What I care is I need to get right with my Lord. That's what David's heart was at. And that's why we love David's example. David confessed his sin to get right with the Lord. Saul confessed his sin to avoid the consequences of his sin. And that's a lesson for you and me. Your next fill in the blank. Repentance. Repentance is about getting right with God, not avoiding consequences of my sin. We notice here that Saul, as he hears the kingdoms being stripped away from him, He says, I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. Saul had sorrow. Saul had confession, but he still lacked genuine repentance. He's begging Samuel to spare him and to return with him. And now look at verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Samuel took that tearing of the robe as a picture representing what God is doing to Saul with the kingdom. Now, although Saul would have the throne taken away from him, It wouldn't happen for like 15 to 20 years. For 15 to 20 years, Saul continues to grip onto that fragment to try to white-knuckle hold on to the throne as long as he possibly can. And during this time, God's raising up young David to become a man after his own heart. Look at verse 29. Samuel says, And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. God here is called the strength of Israel. Remember, Saul just finished erecting this big monument for himself, praising and worshiping himself. 
And Samuel says, the strength of Israel. What a timely title for God. By the way, Saul, you're not strong. Yeah, you're a head taller than everybody else, but that doesn't matter. God is the strength of Israel, not you. God is the one to be worshipped, not you. And Samuel says, God, the strength of Israel, he will not relent. In other words, God will not change his mind. He will take the throne away from you and give it to another. This consequence of your sin will not change, even though it might take 15 to 20 years. It's coming. It will come to pass. And so, verse 30, then he said, Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Did you catch that? Saul says, okay, I hear you, but don't leave. Stay with me, because I'm about to walk in front of all the people my soldiers, my army, and I would look a lot better if you were walking with me. You see, if you were next to me, it would give the image that me and God are still okay because you're the prophet. So walk with me so that I may be honored before the people. It was all about his pride, all about his image. Notice, too, that Saul said, return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul called God the God of Samuel. Now, I might be reading into this too much, but this could indicate more of Saul's heart, where Saul didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. But Saul says, let me go back so I can worship your God. I'm going through you, Samuel. In verses 32 through 35, the king gets hacked. Again, we'll get to that. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. God's judgment was still awaiting fulfillment until Samuel finished the job that Saul left undone. Samuel was willing to do what Saul would not. Remember, at this time, Samuel, he's really old. He's so old that the elders of Israel said, look, you are old. And so we can just imagine this ancient man, Samuel, hacking this King Agag to pieces. It's pretty brutal, but it's a great picture. One, because it says Samuel did this before the Lord. I think that's significant. He did this before the Lord. You see, Samuel didn't care about the words of Agag. Samuel didn't care about the opinions of the people of Israel. Samuel was obedient between him and the Lord. He had an audience of one. Samuel said, I don't really care what people think about me. I know I'm an old wacko, but I'm going to finish what God told me to do. And he did it. 
He was willing to obey. Now, look at verse 34, and then we'll come back to this hacking. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gebeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, it's not saying God regretted it in the sense that you and I would regret and say, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. God's saying from the beginning, I never wanted to do this. I never wanted Israel to have a king that would serve himself. That's why I said you're going to regret this. And so we're just reminded that this was never God's plan A. Before we finish, I want us to consider three lies about spirituality that we've seen here in this chapter. And here's the first lie. Enough time removes sin and guilt. Enough time removes sin and guilt. The Amalekites had sinned against Israel and against God. Although there had been hundreds of years past, time doesn't magically remove their guilt. Their sins still needed to be paid for. So too, we can be tempted to think, oh, I used to be a bad person. I used to make some really dumb choices, but I don't do that anymore. So surely God forgives me. Surely my goodness now outweighs my bad of that period in my past. But that's a false hope. Time doesn't pay for our sin. Only Jesus does. Try going to your bank and saying, I took that loan out a long time ago. Surely enough time's passed, right? I don't need to finish paying it. That's not how it works. You see, if anything, time only adds to our guilt because the longer we neglect to trust in Jesus, the more guilty we are. Because the more times we've said, not yet, Lord, not yet. I'm not, I'm not done living for myself. Here's the next lie. A spiritual past guarantees God's approval. That's a lie. The spiritual past guarantees God's approval. You see, when Saul was anointed as king of Israel, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. And there was a group of prophets that came down, and Saul was overcome with the Holy Spirit, and he began to prophesy with the prophets. It was so amazing that there was even a proverb that was written about it that said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is crazy. Can pigs fly? Can Saul prophesy? God's amazing. That was a spiritual highlight in Saul's life. And yet here in chapter 15, God does not look at Saul and say, man, you totally blew it in this chapter, but at least you had that spiritual experience five chapters ago. That pays for it all. No, it doesn't matter. You see, God looks at Saul's present disobedience and he rebukes him for it. Imagine that your spouse shares, you know, I just don't feel like you love me anymore. And you respond, but honey, I married you. You're welcome. We had a big wedding. We did a big celebration. What more do you want? We've been there, done that, right? Good luck in that marriage, by the way. Well, sometimes we're tempted to do that with God. We think, well, I used to be close to Jesus. I used to flee temptation. I used to read my Bible every day. And God might respond, that's great. But what about today? Just like any relationship that you have, 
where you might say, well, we used to be so close, and they might say, that's great, but I want to be close now. That's what God wants from you and from me now. God says, I'm so glad for those times where you were on fire for me. I'm so glad for those times where you didn't give into the flesh and you lived for me. But today, live for me. Today, love me. Today, obey me. Don't live in the past. Live in the present and love Jesus now. Here's the next lie about spirituality. My rights excuse my wrongs. My rights excuse my wrongs. That's a lie. Saul emphasized that he mostly obeyed, but that didn't excuse him for the things that he didn't put to death. Imagine somebody was arrested for robbing a bank, and he's there in court, and he says, okay, but get this, I didn't hurt anybody, I didn't murder anybody, I didn't even break the speed limit when I drove away from the bank. Does the judge care? No. That's, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. But we're talking about the laws you did break. The laws you didn't break don't excuse the laws you did break. God's a good judge. He will not let sin go unpunished. When we read God's Word, we can find a lot of things that we're doing well. And that's great. But when we're confronted with our sin, we need to repent of that sin. We need to get right with God in that area rather than try to skirt the issue by focusing on our strengths, by focusing on the things that we do well. You see, in this chapter, Agag and the Amalekites, they represent our flesh. They represent our sinful heart that says, Jared, just do it this way. It's going to be better. You're going to like it. We're tempted to try and restrain our flesh, to try to keep it subdued and controlled. You know, shh, not right now, maybe later. But that's not what the Bible tells us to do with our flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, it says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified the flesh. It sounds kind of harsh. It sounds painful. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's painful to tell yourself no. Now, don't get me wrong. We can't do this in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the strength that we need to tell our flesh no, to crucify our flesh. But if we're here trying to just, I'm just going to keep my flesh in this nice little square, of my life. It's, it's, it's controlled. It's tamed. It's not going to work. God says, crucify it. Crucify it. Hack it to pieces. Hack away your flesh for Jesus. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing, a continual thing, because every day our flesh says, ooh, ooh, me, me. This is what we should do. And we have to say, Lord, give me strength. Lord, help me to die to myself right now. Lord, help me to hack my flesh to pieces because this is not what you have for me. God, you have something better. By God's grace, may we not just be sorry when we sin. By God's grace, may we not just confess, yeah, I did, I blew it, I sinned. But let's go beyond that. 
and actually repent. Let's go beyond that and hack our flesh to pieces and say, Lord, I don't want that anymore. I want to stop obeying me and I want to start obeying you. That's repentance. So would you turn to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to live for you. Help me to make my priority getting right with you and living for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, so full of examples that are wonderful examples to follow and imitate, and also full of examples of horrible examples of what not to do. And Lord, I confess, man, I sure can relate to those bad examples. God, I can look at my life and recognize the times where I've chosen to obey me, to commit idolatry by rebelling against you. And Lord, it didn't work out well. Most importantly, Lord, it separated me from you. Because God, that's what sin does. God, would you help us to recognize that sin is rebellion against you? To recognize that sin is idolatry. Lord, if there's anybody here today or listening online... And God, they've not surrendered to you. They've been hoping in these false hopes of maybe time will pay for my sin or maybe my good will outweigh my wrong. God, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would speak to their heart and help them to understand the only way for our sins to be paid for is through you, Jesus, because you, Lord, died on the cross in our place. You paid the debt that we could not pay. Lord, you will bring judgment to the world. But God, your heart is that we would turn and repent and trust in you so that we can be saved and spared of that judgment. And so, Lord, I pray today that anybody who has not yet made that decision would say, Lord, I recognize that I have been living for myself. Lord, I surrender to you. God, help me to follow you. Help me to obey you and to trust in your work on the cross to bring me to heaven. Lord, for those of us who are already believers, but we read this passage and we say, God, I haven't been totally obedient to you. God, we confess we need more of you. We need a lot less of ourselves. And so, God, we invite your Holy Spirit to continue to change our hearts, to continue to make us more like you. And, God, I pray that you would help us not to try to fight sin in our own strength or in our own flesh, but, God, help us to simply open our hands to you. Lord, we see here in this chapter where Saul was trying to hold on with everything he had. And because of it, he lost everything. God, you're inviting us today to open up our hands, to let go of every situation we're trying to hold on to, to let go of every sin and fleshly thing that we're trying to hold on to. God, would you give us the faith that we need to open our hands and say, Lord, I surrender to you. I trust you with it all. And Lord, help me to hack my flesh to pieces, to be obedient to you, and to be little in my own eyes. Lord, I thank you that you take us where we're at. 
God, would you use us, your church, for your glory and for your kingdom? And God, would you do amazing things, spreading your gospel, expanding your kingdom, glorifying your name, Jesus, in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.